You know, last month was a month of October, and in the month of October is always Pastor Appreciation Month. And we had something for our pastor, but he was too sick to be appreciated that time, so he said he's going to take a, a day off or, or a week off, so he's back today. So some of you have been asking, I said, yes, we got it, we got it, but you know, Brother Mike, come on around, you're going to be ready to preach anyway, brother, but anyway, we got a little something here. It's from all of us saying thank you for our pastor. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm just one person, right? The ministry of the church isn't just me; it's it's y'all. And so, just know that I, I'm just the I'm just the beautiful face. We together are the church, aren't we? And I want you to know I appreciate you, each and every one of you. Isaiah chapter five this morning. We have been looking at some false gods. We have been looking at the God of self, the false God of every age. Uh, uh, ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been struggling against the God of self. We've looked at the false God of humanity as a whole, uh, how with humanistic mindset, we often look at humanity and, well, if we just had the right education or, or we were just under the right system, that people would be just fine. You know, if, if, if you just, you know, people are basically good. And we've learned that, no, we're not basically good. We've, we were made good. And then we fell. And ever since, we have been not enough to save ourselves, not enough to be good on our own. We've needed God ever since. A couple weeks ago, we talked about gender identity. We talked about the confusion that, that is so prevalent in our society today about the basic fundamental blocks of reality. What is a man and a woman and what that means and how so many are worshiping a false God that says, I can be whatever I choose to be. I can be whatever I feel like. Today, we're not going to talk about a God so much as one of the, God, one of the tools that these false gods often use. And it plays into what we were talking about already. It's the tool of false truths. Now that is an oxymoron, isn't it? False truths. I mean, it, truth by definition is not false. It is true. That's, that's what makes it truth. Greatly, I need you to sit down, please. Thank you, bud. Truth is by its nature true, not false. So how can you have false truths? Well, what we're talking about today are those things that we often kind of say like they're true, but they're not true. And Isaiah chapter 5 shows that. So let's read together. Stand with me as we read. Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to focus on three verses, 18, 19, and 20. But, but we're also going to talk about a little bit more than just what's in these three verses. Isaiah 5, verses 18 to 20. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Woe to those, Isaiah says, who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet 
for better. Pray with me. Father, this morning, I pray that your word would dig deep into our hearts, till the rough ground that may be there, crush the rocks, remove the weeds, add in the nutrients that are missing so that your word will take root and grow and bear fruit in us. This is your time. You do your will. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 5 is actually two songs. The beginning, uh, the first few verses, first few chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah has plenty of woes to give out. Woe to this group. Woe to that group. Woe to this city. Woe to this nation. And by the time he gets to chapter 5, he's about woed out. He's saying all these woes to all of these different places. Now, you have to know something about Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah is prophesying in the time of the Jehu dynasty up in the northern kingdom of Israel. If you'll remember, Israel was all one kingdom until after Solomon's death. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes charge. And Jeroboam, with a group of of, uh, elders from the northern tribes, comes in and appeals to Rehoboam. Your father put a heavy load on us. Lighten the load and we will serve you. And Rehoboam goes to his father's advisors and they say what they're saying is true. Your father taxed them heavily, worked them heavily, give them relief. And he goes to his friends and Rehoboam's friends say, oh no, no, you've got to have an even stronger hand. Rehoboam decides to follow his friend's advice because, you know, when God wants to do something, he'll do it. Rehoboam thought he was being smart In reality, he was just doing what God wanted because God wanted this kingdom split up. The northern tribes following Jeroboam set their own country, the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern tribes, the the tribe of Judah, and and I think Benjamin is kind of halfway in between, kind of sort of with the south, kind of sort of with the north, kind of back and forth. That kingdom of Judah in the south had some good kings. But up north, they didn't have a single good king. Every king was wicked. Every single one. By the time of Jehu's dynasty, uh, Israel is becoming more prosperous than ever, but they are also going farther and farther away from God than ever. And Isaiah is prophesying in the middle of this time in Israel's history. And he's calling on the northern tribes to repent before they are done in. And so chapter 5 begins with this song of the vineyard. God sings a song of his vineyard and how he plants this vineyard and how he grows this vineyard up. He, (coughs) excuse me, how he he puts all of these nutrients in the soil and he builds this wall around it and gets all the weeds out. How he loves and nurtures this vineyard, but the plants were bad plants and they produced sour grapes. And so the only thing left to do is to tear up the vineyard completely because it's not fulfilling its purpose. And then Isaiah begins his funeral dirge for the northern kingdom. Verses 8 through 30 in chapter 5 are a dirge. Now, maybe you've been to a funeral and you've heard some music that was kind of upbeat and it was celebratory. And, and, and the pastor may have said something like, we, like we want to gather to celebrate the life of this individual. That's common in our culture. We tend to want to to make the funeral something that's more celebratory in nature. 
to remember the good things about that individual, maybe to find comfort in their passing, but also to set an example of what kinds of things we should do too while we're still here. But in some cultures, it's much more common to go the opposite way. For the funeral to be mourning and grief, for there to be somber music. Have you ever been to a funeral like that? Where everything was very somber. There wasn't much celebrating. There wasn't much smiling and laughing about funny things that they did or said. There was just a lot of grief. That's what a dirge is. A dirge is a song of grief. In Isaiah chapter 5, the end of that chapter is a song of grief. Isaiah is not pointing to them and saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's not pointing the finger at them and cursing them and accusing them. No, he's saying, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And so when he says in verse 18, what are we going to do? Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. He's not pointing the finger, blaming them and cursing them. He's saying, what are these folks going to do? They're in trouble. By the way, I want you to know that there are always plenty of woes where there's plenty of sin. Sin never comes without woe. Never. These false truths that we want to concentrate on this morning are bringing destruction. And they do so in several ways. They pull us away from the worship of the true God in several different ways. I want us to see. First, they bind us to sin. False truths, truths, bind us to sin. Notice in verse 18 what he says. He says, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Now, this isn't a common use of the word draw, In our modern day, we don't typically use the word draw like this. What he's talking about is imagine, if you will, that there is something that you are dragging behind you and you're pulling it with ropes. Okay, you got the picture? Maybe maybe it's a little thing. We have this thing at home that holds uh, random stuff. It, it's, it's used by hunters to help carry out deer carcasses. It's a, we use it a lot for wood in our yard. So we get some wood and we're kind of dragging it to the pile. We'll put it on the ground. We'll put the wood on top and we take the rope that's on it and we drag it across, right? That's the picture that Isaiah is painting here. He says, look, those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. So the iniquity is kind of the the thing that you're pulling behind you and the way that you're pulling it is with lies. Those cords of falsehood, those lies are the ways that you bring the iniquity with you, but it's not like you're just grabbing it and pulling it along. No, it's almost like the cord is wrapped around you and you can't help but pull it along because you can't loosen the binds. Here's what happens. When you allow allow lies to take root, what happens is that they tie you up to your iniquity. They don't let you go. They can't let you get away from it. You are strapped in and bound to it and there's nothing you can do. Because of the lies, you are bound to your sin. Those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. False truths bind us to sin. They wrap us up. Not not only do they do that, they also blind us to wisdom. It's been attributed to Adolf Hitler. If you tell a lie loud enough and often enough, even you'll start to believe it. I don't know if he said that or not. 
But it's true, isn't it? If you keep lying and keep lying and keep lying, eventually you start to believe the lie. And that happens whether you're saying it out loud or whether you're just saying it in your head, right? How many of you know someone that only talk bad about themselves because they've heard over and over again, you're not worth anything. You always mess everything up. Eventually, it starts to become true, doesn't it? False truths bind us to wisdom. Look at verse 19. They say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Who is him? It took me a minute. I, when I first read this verse, I thought, who are they talking about? And, and I kind of read through it a few times. I finally think I figured out who him is. Look at, look at the next part. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. You know what they're doing? They're saying, yeah, let God do what he's going to do. Let's see what the big guy says so that we can all know. Now you talk about, you talk about dumb. Challenging the God of the universe to do what he's going to do. Defiantly challenging him like, let's see what he's really got. That's kind of dumb, isn't it? They're blind to wisdom. Why? Because they believed lie. You see, when you believe the lie, you fail to recognize what the truth is. Eventually, you hear and you believe the lie so much that truth could smack you in the face and you wouldn't know what it is. You'd be completely blind to it. And that's exactly what happens. This is why in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about people who look at the creation and they worship the creation instead of the Creator. God has made Himself obvious through the things that He's made, but yet we reject that as human beings because we believe the lie. The lie that this is all there is. The lie that there, there is no God. You know who says that? The fool. The one blind to wisdom. And lies do just that. They blind us to wisdom. Do I need to take Him out? No. You do that again, I'm taking you out. We're still a work in progress. Another thing false truths do, they bribe us to corruption. False truths bribe us to corruption. Now, that might kind of sound interesting, but look in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, does it really matter? Does it really matter if something's bitter or sweet? This person is so, so engrossed in the lie that they are willing to call anything its opposite. Reality gets turned upside down because they don't want to admit any kind of truth. Because to admit any kind of truth is to admit that you don't have it. This is why you sometimes watch... Um, if you ever watch a political debate and then you watch both sides of the media, both conservative media and uh, left media, and they're both talking about the same debate, they will reach dramatically different, uh, dramatically different conclusions. Oh, well, this candidate looked very strong. He was poised. He, had, he, was, he was confident. He spoke clearly and articulately. He obviously was the better debater. The other side will say, yeah, this, this person was attacking all the right angles. They were, they were getting an unfair shake from the questions, but, but they were, they were really like a hound dog, just keep going and then the opponent never had an answer. This person clearly won the debate. Yeah, some of y'all might remember the first televised debate 
I think it was Kennedy and Nixon were debating, and I, well, I'm not old enough to remember it. I just have heard the story. And anybody who listened on the radio thought Nixon was the better debater. He had clearer, uh, he was more articulate, he had clearer points, he was, he was making his arguments better. Uh, Kennedy just couldn't hold his own in that verbal. But anybody watching on TV said Kennedy won the debate because he looked better. He looked, no, he was younger and, and, and better appearance. He had, he had on the right kind of suit for the background so he didn't blend in. He looked sharper. On television, Kennedy looked like he was the winner. But over the radio, Nixon sounded like he was the winner. And that's exactly what we do. We take whatever we want to take, whatever evidence we want to see, whatever things we want to portray a certain way, and we completely disregard everything else. And the problem is what that does is that makes us corrupt. It incentivizes us to be corrupt, to call things the way we want them to be. Imagine an umpire, and he is just calling all kinds of bad calls. A referee, whatever your sport is, whatever that official is, he is calling all kinds of bad calls. What do people start to say? How much do they pay you, Blue? We immediately think there must be a bribe. I've been reading through Gulag Archipelago and just this week happened to read a chapter where he focuses on the way that the gulags corrupted the entire country. And it's fascinating how maybe definitely less than 10% of the country had been in the gulags, and yet the poison had spread throughout all of the Soviet Union. It's amazing to me how that little bit of corruption spreads so quickly and it doesn't just happen in Soviet Russia. It's happened all throughout history. Lies, lies bribe us. They incentivize us to be more corrupt. Lies never make someone better. You think, well, I lie. I'm just saying this. I know it's not really true, but I'm just saying this so that, so that we don't hurt them. This is for their benefit. You know, it's good for kids to believe in Santa Claus. Is it? Is it really good to lie? No, because these false truths will always, always make us more corrupt. Always, even the good sounding ones. And in the end, false truths book us to destruction. They bind us to our sins. They blind us to wisdom. They bribe us to corruption and then they book us to destruction. A couple of verses later, Isaiah 5 verse 24 says this, therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. What he's saying here, it only leads to destruction. When you reject God's law, when you despise his words, and you accept lies instead of truth, it will destroy you. Now, it might take a while. It may take a long while. Adam and Eve both eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were consequences right away. They immediately, immediately, it says their eyes were opened. But they didn't die for quite a while. If I read the Bible correctly, Adam lived for hundreds of years after that moment. But he did die. Destruction may not come quickly, but it will always come when you accept the lie instead of the truth. 
We know how it works, so what do we do? How do we guard against these false truths? Well, if we're going to guard against lies and false truths, then maybe, maybe we ought to know the truth. Maybe that's the place to start. I mean, after all, how do you know a counterfeit if you don't know what real money looks like? How do you know? How do you know that someone is a godly person until you get to know them and you watch them and you see them and you hear them? How do you know the truth? You got to be exposed to the truth. Listen to uh, how David, you, Savannah read Psalm 25.1. Look at a couple verses later. Look at verses four and five of that same chapter. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. What is the psalmist doing here? He's begging God. He's saying, God, show me your ways. Teach me the truth. Now, why would he say that? Why wouldn't he just go to a library and, and, and read nonfiction? I hate to tell you this, but some nonfiction books are fiction. They pretend like they're not. They really are. But he goes to God and he says, God, you show me truth. You teach me truth. You you lead me in the truth. There's a recognition that if we are going to battle the false truth, if we are going to stand up against the lie, we have to know what the real truth is. Now, sometimes you might not know exactly why something's wrong, but you know it's wrong. I I remember one time someone, someone was trying to tell me something. And the whole time I'm thinking, that's not true. I know that's not true. I can't tell you why it's not true. I can't point to a specific place. I, he was talking about a, a, a theory on something in the Bible. And I said, you know, I can't identify exactly why that's wrong. I just know that's wrong. Coming months after that, I happened to find out why he was wrong. I figured out. I, like I, I learned and I studied and, and I came to realize why he was wrong. God opened me up to that truth. But at the moment, I couldn't tell you what it was. I just knew. That's not right. See, the more truth you know, the more falsehood you'll also know because you'll learn how to recognize what's true. Jesus said it this way. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you see the connection? How do they know the truth? You see, see, this is, a, this is an if-then statement. So the thens are all dependent on the if. The thens, you are my disciples. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. All depend on that same if back in verse 31 where he says, if you abide in my word. How do we know the truth? We know the truth. We read the truth. We learn the truth. We ask God to show us the truth because his word is truth. Now, are you going to read in here every true piece of information that you could ever need to know in your life? No. But the more you get to know this word, the more you'll get to know the God who spoke it, the God of all truth, you'll be able to recognize what's true and what's not. Even if the words never appear in this book at all. Know the truth. Second, value the truth. Part of the reason why things got so corrupt in the Soviet Union, uh, Solzhenitsyn talks about this. He says, people had, under fear of punishment, had to say things that were not true and say them enthusiastically. It wasn't just enough that you didn't counteract whatever the propaganda was of the day. You had to affirm it and you had to affirm it with all of your might. 
There's one story that he tells about of, of this certain time that I think it was Lennon that was giving a speech and people in the audience stood to applaud. And of course, everybody's got to stand up to applaud because if you're not standing, you know, there's plenty of security folks in there that are watching for who's not standing. The problem is once you start clapping, you can't be the one to stop the clapping. Someone else has to stop before you because if you're not, then you're not enthusiastic enough. And so for a while, these folks are clapping and they're cheering and, 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 and all of this look of how enthusiastic they are. Finally, an old guy just finally gets tired of it and stops clapping and sits down. And the whole chamber is relieved because now everybody else can stop clapping and sit down too. Because he's the one that's going to get arrested and not me. You see, what happens, what happens is that we start to devalue truth. The lie is not so bad. I don't really believe it, but who cares if they want me to say this? There are a lot of people that would say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And then when they had to make their confession that Caesar was Lord, they would say the words, get the paper that said that they affirmed it, and then go right back to worshiping Jesus. Too weak in the faith, perhaps lacking faith at all. They didn't value the truth. We have to value truth. Psalm 119.43 says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Do you see how much the psalmist values the truth? He puts his hope in what God has said. And not just in the promises, in the rules. How many of us can say my hope is in God's rules? Do we love truth that much? That it doesn't even matter if it puts constrictions on us. It doesn't even matter if he forces us to go in a particular way that we may not feel like going, but we put our hope in what he said anyway, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's hard, even when it makes sacrificing demands of us. Do we put our hope in what God has said? Do we value truth? Psalm 23, 23 says, buy truth and do not sell it. I used to thought that was odd. Wouldn't you want people to share truth? Share it, yes. Sell it, no. Get as much of it as you can and don't give it away. Don't sell it. It's worth too much for you to sell. All of us have something in our house that is worth too much for us to ever sell. It's probably not worth that much in terms of money, but there's still a value on it. That was given to me by my grandmother. That was a fairly heirloom that's been passed down for generations. That was the baseball that I got signed by that famous player when I was just a little kid. And no amount of money can replace that memory. We value it. We wouldn't think of selling it. Do that with truth. Buy truth and don't sell it. Buy wisdom. Buy instruction. Buy understanding. The third kind of follows from the first two. If you know the truth and if you truly value it, you're not going to be able to help but do the third thing, and that's speak the truth. Zechariah says, these are the things you should do. This is God through his prophet. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Do you notice how truth is being spoken? Speak the truth to one another. When you're talking to each other, tell the truth. When you're having conversations, tell the truth. Don't tell the lie. Tell the truth. Value the truth enough that even in informal conversations, always, always, always speaking the truth. Render in your gates judgments that are true. When it really matters, 
when it's a court case. Doesn't matter how much you might not like the other guy, speak the truth. Doesn't matter how much you might want him to be punished, speak the truth. Doesn't matter how innocent you think he is, speak the truth. Or how much you don't think he deserves punishment, speak the truth. But you also got to speak the truth inside. Beginning of verse 17, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Speak the truth. Don't plan to do someone else wrong. Speak the truth. Love no false oath. You give your word, speak the truth. Everything you say in your head and with your mouth, let it be true. Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one of another. Lies don't have any place in the church. They don't have any place in the life of believers, whether in the church or going out. Speak the truth. Last thing, you don't think it's just enough to say the truth, do you? No, you got to live the truth. Every aspect of our lives ought to be pointing to truth. And remember, truth isn't just an idea. Truth isn't just a philosophical concept. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. And he's right, he is, right? He's speaking the truth. So if truth comes down to a person of Jesus Christ, then our lives ought to reflect that truth in everything we do. Not just in the words we say. Because how many people do you know know the right words but don't live anything like it? How many of us have that same issue from time to time? Live the truth. Seek good, Amos says. Amos, Amos is a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah's up in the northern kingdom. Around the same time, Amos is in the southern kingdom. He's spending a lot of time in Jerusalem. And their messages are kind of the same message to two different groups of people. Amos says, seek good and not evil. Don't look after evil. Don't look to do wrong. Seek good instead that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. You really want God to be with you? Live the truth. Live your life according to truth. What does that look like? How does that flesh out? Well, David wrote Psalm 15, and he kind of shows us what that looks like. Oh Lord, he says, who, sa- who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. There's your acid test. Is that what I look like? Do I walk blamelessly? Do I do what's right? Do I speak the truth in my heart? Do I slander? Do I do evil against my neighbor? Do I take up reproach against my friend? Do I despise the vile person? Do I honor those who fear God? Do I swear when it doesn't benefit me? Do I make an oath and and, and then not change it, but keep it, even when it works against me? Do I seek to exploit people who are in need by charging interest? or by accepting a bribe against the innocent person. 
See, living the truth is more than just about what you say. It's, it's how you live. It's living like Christ. We need people who will live the truth. Because here's the thing. Back to the gulags. Solzhenitsyn made a, uh, made a discovery that others also made as well. The people who went in with that firm foundation, who knew what the truth was and were unwilling to move from it, unwilling to accept the lies, those were the people that gulag could never corrupt. The ones who were already corrupt, though, it just made things worse. We live in a society that if you are not willing to stand against the lie and speak the truth, it will try everything it can to destroy you. But we also live in a society that can not touch you if you do remain firm in the truth. It can't do anything to you. All it can do is wonder why it's not effective. It could kill you. But Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill your body. Fear the one who can affect your soul. We need people who will live truth, who will stand on truth, who will speak truth. And that means that we need to be people who know what the truth is and who value it so much that we're not willing to give it up. And I believe that God has put us on the earth for such a time as this. You might think, I'm not up to the task. No, you're definitely not. We need God's help. I say that because I'm not either. And I need God's help too. But then again... Who better to help us to live the truth than the truth himself? Father, help us to be people of truth. People who don't fall for the false truths of our day. People who don't give in to the lies and the deceit. Who aren't willing to just roll over and and accept whatever garbage they try to shove down our throats. God, help us to be people of truth, but also people full of grace too. Give us that balance. Help us to be those people who are both graceful and dedicated to truth. Father, you're doing your work in us. You might be leading some of us to do some things that are uncomfortable, that are, that are difficult, that are not easy. You might be leading us to do some things that we've put, been putting off for a while that we've, that God, we just, we know we should. Father, you may also be leading us to have difficult conversations to talk to someone that we've tried before and it's just always been so hard. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength, the courage to stand for truth as you need us to stand, as you call us to stand, that we would faithfully endure whatever comes our way in obedience to your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Father, you do the work in us that you need to do, that we need you to do. Equip us for the battle ahead. In this time of invitation, you lead us. In Christ's name, amen.